All right, everyone have their Bibles? We're finishing John chapter 3 this morning. John the Baptist has returned. I believe that this is the last appearance of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John does not give you some of the information that the other Gospels give you, and the other Gospels will inform you that John was eventually arrested by Herod Antipas, and, uh, and he was arrested because he rebuked Herod for marrying Herodias, who was the ex-wife of Herod's brother. And that caused a whole bunch of issues, and John the Baptist told Herod that he, he shouldn't have done that, and uh, he ends up getting arrested. I'm just kind of paraphrasing it, keeping it simple for you without going into the whole story. But while John the Baptist was in jail, we find out in, in Mark, for example, Mark chapter 6, verse 20, that actually Herod enjoyed going down and uh, talking to John the Baptist. It says that uh, though Herod feared John, he feared John because he knew John was a righteous and a holy man, and he was afraid something might happen to him because he had a righteous and holy man in jail. Right? So he feared him because of that, but he kept him safe. And then when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly, which means he loved to go down there and discuss things with John, even though he didn't quite understand what John was saying or what it meant. So anyway, Herod eventually arrests John and throws him in jail, and we won't be getting into that in the Gospel of John. And as you know how the story goes, Herodias gets her daughter to basically trick Herod into beheading John and that's how his life ends. So this morning, John the Baptist has returned. And like I said, I think this is the last appearance of John the Baptist. Maybe the not, not the last mention of John, but the last appearance of John uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John. So let's read. We're going to read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It says, After this... And this would be after his discussion with Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, the Baptist, also was baptizing at Aeneon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison, it says. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, this would be John's disciples. John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you will just, your spirit, Lord, will just speak this to us, speak it to our hearts, and draw us closer to you. In here, Lord, is the truth of who Jesus is. In these first three chapters that we've read through, the truth of who Jesus is has come out bold. And it's declared again here at the end of the chapter. It's declared again here by John the Baptist, who gives us some truths about Jesus. There, there are things that are in this chapter that we need to adhere to that we need to have part of our life. And today, Lord, I pray you just continue to work these out in our lives as you continue to shape us and mold us and draw us closer to you, Lord. Lord, we need to decrease, and you need to increase in our lives. And I pray we do just that. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It would seem that after Jesus is done talking to Nicodemus, he and his disciples just go into the Judean countryside and they start baptizing people there. Now this isn't about baptism. It says that a discussion arose between John uh, the Baptist disciples and a Jew. It doesn't say a group of Jews. It doesn't say a Pharisee or a Sadducee, though it could be a religious leader. We don't know. Some people think it's Nicodemus. Some people think that John the Baptist's disciples are actually having a discussion with Nicodemus, and they're having this discussion over the importance of purification. So it doesn't really have anything to do with baptism in the sense, not John's baptism or Jesus' baptism. Baptism, of course, is not essential to salvation, but it's an obedience to Christ. So if you have put your faith in Christ and surrendered your life to Jesus and you haven't been baptized yet and you understand what that means, you should be baptized. It's just, it's just obedience. It's an outward expression of an inward change in your heart because of your faith in Jesus. But this, Jesus, because, but this isn't really about, they're not debating baptism. The debate or the discussion Right? It says discussion, but I think that's just a nice word for it because I, when you look at the Greek, you can see that the word means debate. So that they're having a debate here, and we aren't given the details exactly about the debate other than the sense that they're just debating purification. And of course, purification was important to the Jews because under the law, you had to keep yourself ceremonially clean to serve and please God. But from this discussion, whatever this discussion is between the, the disciples of John the Baptist and this Jew, whoever he was, comes this information that Jesus is baptizing people and that everyone, or all, as John the Baptist's disciples say, are going to him. And this causes a problem, right? This causes a problem for the John the Baptist's disciples. It would seem that they're jealous, right? It would seem that there's a controversy brewing. Oh, no. Two people are baptizing, and Jesus is stealing our ministry, John. Right? It can't be. Everyone's going to him and being baptized. We're losing numbers. Jesus is baptizing more people than we are. Right? John's disciples seem to be very alarmed. Stop the presses. Right? Quick, call the news. You know? How do you make an albino feel worthless? Just tell them that they pale in comparison to everyone else. 
there's this idea that's going on here between Jesus's camp and John the Baptist's camp. It's 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 a comparison, right? All of a sudden, John's disciples are comparing themselves to Jesus, what Jesus is doing, and they're like, "Hey, we don't we don't match up here. This isn't this isn't right. There's a problem." You know, you've heard the you've heard the quote: "Comparison is a thief of joy," right? And depending on you know where you hang out in the internet, you know, that, that quote's either, you know, by Theodore Roosevelt or Mark Twain or Abraham Lincoln or Elon Musk or whoever said it, right? It just depends on what you read. No one really knows who said the quote. But the truth is, is that comparison is a thief of joy. Comparison is, matter of fact, a death of joy, right? If all we do during the day is compare our Instagram glamour shots to everyone else's Instagram glamour shots, we're going to be disappointed, right? They have better lights. They have better cameras, they have a whole production team behind them. You just got yourself in the living room with the cats or whatever. It's, it's not going to match up quite the same. You're going to be disappointed. You're always going to be dissatisfied. It tells us in Philippians 4.11 that, that it, he, you know, Paul writes, he says, they've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Well, wherever the Lord has you, whatever the Lord is doing with you, whatever it looks like, whatever your ministry looks like for the Lord, because we all have a ministry for the Lord. Whatever that looks like, you've learned to be, you need to learn to be content with it and not compare yourself to what other people are doing or what other churches are doing. Like, as a church, we don't compare ourselves to other churches. As much as it's hard, right, to, to not do that because everyone wants you to do that. Well, how do you compare with these other churches? I don't compare us to other churches. Let, that, let the Lord work with their church differently and let the Lord work with our church differently. I'm not going to compare. He doesn't work the same with everybody. Why would I expect him to? Right? And so when you think of that word content uh, in the Greek, that word means just to be satisfied, but in a future sense, that Greek word can also mean to ward off or defend. Right? So what are you defending against? What are you trying to ward off? Well, you're trying to ward off the opposite, right? Which is discontentment or dissatisfaction. That's what you're trying to ward off. You need to be content in where the Lord has you and what the Lord's doing through your life so you don't become dissatisfied. Thinking, oh, this isn't right. I'm not doing enough. Or, you know, the Lord must not like me very much because we're not getting, Jesus is getting more people than we are, John. Right? When we compare our lives to someone else's, someone else is always going to have more money than you. Someone's always going to take more vacations than you do. Someone's always going to seem to have the perfect life that you can't live up to, you know, in a worldly sense. You're never, you'll never be satisfied if you continue to compare yourselves to other people. And churches, like I said, churches fall into the same trap as well. We do this all the time. This is why churches change names. This is why churches change leadership. This is why churches do all kinds of strange things. As they continue to compete with other churches in the neighborhood, it doesn't have, it has very little to do with teaching Jesus. It has a lot to do with just bringing in numbers because they're, they're about drawing crowds. And when they look across the street and they see the other church over there and they're like, oh, that other church is drawing huge crowds. Look what they're doing this weekend, right? Oh, they're having a parking lot baptism barbecue car wash, right? How, how can we outdo that? Okay, well, we'll bring in the bouncy houses and the clowns and an elephant. That's what we'll do. We'll bring in, right? And so they have these competitions and I'm being a little facetious, but not really, right? Because just look at churches at Easter time and you can understand what I'm talking about. They get into this competition, 
Because they become dissatisfied because they see more things going on over there at that other church and there must be a problem, right? And so that's what John the Baptist's disciples have fallen into. They've fallen into this trap where they are not content with what they have because they looked over across the river or wherever Jesus was and they're like, hey, he's drawing more people than we are. He's baptized. Everyone's going to him, John, Right? It tells us in Hebrews 13, 5, you know, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Well, what do you have? Well, you have Jesus, right? And he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So no matter where you are in your ministry with what the Lord's doing with you, be content because what do you have? You have Jesus. Be content with Jesus. Yet John's disciples seemed very alarmed about the fact that Jesus was baptizing people and more people were going over to Jesus. But John the Baptist himself is not alarmed one bit. It didn't faze John the Baptist in the slightest. He was very content with who he was and what his ministry was. He had a mission. His mission was to point to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. He was focused and on point and would not allow himself to be distracted. He was not going to allow the fickle crowds to make him forget his mission. Right? What did, what did John, the author, right, the apostle, John, write about Jesus at the end of chapter 2? At the end of chapter 2, in verse 24, it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus understood. Right? Jesus understood that men are fickle. They'll just go wherever. Well, John knows this too. So John's not worried about these things. Right? John knew this as well. Men are fickle. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're blown wherever their empty stomachs lead them. You know, whatever looks like that's going to have the better barbecue, that's, you know, that's the neighbor's house they're going to end up at. I'm not worried about those things. I'm really, he's like, I'm not. Men are led by their selfish desires. But it's good for us. It's good for us as believers not to get caught up in that. Right? Not to be led by a worldly spirit such as that. And the kind of spirit that I'm talking about is that I'm only in it for what I can get out of it kind of spirit. Because that's, how, that's what leads many people to many different places. Right? Church hopping, church shopping is caused by people looking to, you know, I'm only in it for what I can get out of it. And that type of person's being tossed to and fro, right? For the waves, they're carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes, as it tells us in Ephesians 4, instead of being led by the Spirit. But John's being led by the Spirit of God. And so he's not worried at all over the fact that Jesus is baptizing people and that all people are going to Jesus. It doesn't bother John the Baptist in the slightest because that's John the Baptist's ministry. His ministry is to point people to Jesus. And if people are going to Jesus, that must mean it's working. So he wasn't by the least bit concerned. He was walking by the Spirit. He wasn't about gratifying the desires of the flesh, as it tells us in Galatians 5. So what does John say about Jesus? Well, of course, the main thing that he says that's really the center of what we're talking about today is verse 30, which we will get to in a second. But verse 30 says, he must increase, I must decrease. That's ultimately what John the Baptist says about Jesus. And that's the center of everything that we're going to discuss. But first thing he says, the first declaration that John actually makes, understanding 
why that must be, why John must decrease, why Jesus must increase. The first thing he says is verse 27. And he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That's his first statement to his disciples. So therefore, if all the people are going to Jesus, it must be God's will. So why would I worry about it? He can't receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. So if all the people are going to Jesus, then so be it. Right? Thank the Lord. Because he, it must be God's will. Right? All ministry, all blessings come from God. There is no competition here. So if they're all going to Jesus, then that's the will of God. Rejoice. Don't complain. Quit worrying. Quit comparing his ministry to our ministry. Right? The ministry... My ministry, John says, is to point people to Jesus. Everyone's going to Jesus, so to God be the glory. That's exactly what we want. That's the first thing he says, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 7, it's neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth, right? Give glory to God because of what's happening. It must be God's will. My favorite verse, 1 Peter 4, 10, one of my favorite verses, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Right? John had received a gift. John's gift was the point, in a sense, was his teaching, his proclamation, the point, the voice crying out in the wilderness to tell people, go to Jesus. And people were going to Jesus. It upset his disciples, right? Because they liked the fame, maybe. They liked the numbers. They liked the acclaim. They liked, the, you know, whatever. But John's like, I'm not about any of that. They're going to Jesus. That is my ministry. It's good. It's got to be God's will because not one thing can be given to him unless it's given to him from heaven. And then he says this, and he illustrates it this way. And this is really beautiful. And it's also very prophetic. A lot of what John said is prophetic. This is very prophetic. Starts with verse uh, 28. First he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I am not the Christ. I've already told you I'm not the Christ. He is. So why would people want to come to me anyway? Right? I have been sent before him. And then this, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Right? The friend of the bridegroom, or you could think of it this way, the best man, right, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He says, when, did the, when was the first time John the Baptist rejoiced greatly at the bridegroom's voice, in a sense? When he was in his mother's womb still, right? John the Baptist has been rejoicing greatly about Jesus since before he was born, right? The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That's what he says. So for your Bible trivia nights, this is the first of only three times in the New Testament that the, that the church, that believers in Jesus, which is the church, those who come to Jesus in faith are referred to as the bride. Now, most of the time when we talk about the church being the bride of Christ, people quote Ephesians chapter 5, which is great. It's a, it's a great section of verses. 
And from those verses, right, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? So from that, we can make the point that the church is the bride of Christ. But it never actually says anywhere in there, the bride, I'm being technical, it never actually says anywhere in there, the bride, yet most people only quote from Ephesians when they're making that point, and that's fine, I don't have a problem with that. But here we have John the Baptist stating it for fact early on in the ministry of Jesus. He says, listen, Jesus is the bridegroom. That's something that's not lost on the Jews. Just as he says, look, look, there's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. That's not lost on the Jews, right? Jesus referring to himself as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, messianic terms. That's not lost on the people, assuming that they know their scripture, specifically religious leaders. That's not lost on them what he's saying. Whether they accept it or not, it's a completely different thing, but it's not lost on them what he's saying. John the Baptist is saying, listen, there's the bridegroom. And all who are coming to him and putting their faith in him and being baptized by Jesus are the bride. And isn't it a great thing if the bride comes to the bridegroom? As the best man, he says, I'm rejoicing. Right? I've been rejoicing since before I was born. My mom told me stories. I remember. Right? Jesus is the bridegroom. John just says, I'm the best man. And once the bridegroom and the bride have been united, brought together, they're not technically married yet, but we, you know, I'll get into that in just a second. But, you know, the idea, they're betrothed in that sense. Then the work of the best man is kind of done. He doesn't have anything to do but now just sit there and rejoice over the marriage. Why would John want to compete against that? Why would he be, be competing against Jesus? Huh? He, like he said, he isn't the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm content with being the voice of one crying in the wilderness, shouting out, make straight for the way of the Lord. I'm content with my job. I'm happy right here. As the best man, I'm rejoicing because I've seen the bride and the bridegroom united. The joy of John the Baptist is now complete. Now, just as was tradition for Jewish weddings, the Jewish wedding during the time of Christ, right? The bridegroom and the bride would be then, after the betrothal in a sense, or during the betrothal, would be separated for a period of time because the bridegroom would usually go to make a house, usually within his father's house somewhere, to bring his bride to him. So they'd be separated. And that's where we are right now as a church, right? The church age in which we are right now is the bride, during the betrothal period, is separated from the bridegroom. Because what did Jesus say? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, you will be also. I will come and get you and I will bring you to me once the time is ready. And that, of course, is the rapture. That, of course, is the rapture. He's going to prepare a place for us. And so our responsibility, well... As the bride, while we're waiting for the bridegroom to come and retrieve us, is really what Ephesians 5 says. That's really what Ephesians 5 is saying. Our responsibility, while we're dressed and ready, while we wait for this blessed hope, 
during this betrothal period is just to be faithful to Jesus. This is what, like I said, Ephesians 5 tells us. We should be submitted to Christ. And then at the rapture, the bride will be united with the bridegroom, and the official wedding ceremony will take place as we are united with Christ, and the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. It's a seven-year marriage supper in comparison to the wedding, which was a seven-day feast. It's a seven-year marriage supper. I'm looking forward to my seat at the table. Right? I've been to a lot of good barbecues, but never one that lasted seven years. I'm, I don't even know what that's going to be like, but I'm going to be having a good time. We were watching some... some uh, teachings from a, a prophecy conference Eddie and I were watching, and one of the guys was like, you know, because it talks about how the church co is coming back with Christ at the second coming, right? He's like, I've already named my horse, right? And, and the other guy is like, ah, oh, yeah, you could name your horse if you want, but I already picked out my seat at the table, right? <laughs> it's like, that's kind of how I feel. It's like, yeah, I'm looking forward to my seat at that table, right? Seven-year marriage supper comes from Revelation chapter 19, Right. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. So, John the Baptist, prophetically, is telling his disciples, listen, Jesus is the bridegroom. Those who come to Jesus are the bride. I'm just the best man. And like I said, none of that should have been lost on his disciples. They should have understood the illustration. Why? Because Jehovah had a marriage covenant with the nation Israel. Right? For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. comes from Isaiah 54, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 62, 5. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. Hosea 2, 19. So this was taught. There, there was already a marriage covenant. They understood that. They were looking forward to it. So John, using that illustration, shouldn't have been lost on them. Yet there was still one, there was one little small problem, and that's Israel had been unfaithful to God. Right? Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah 3, Israel had been faithful. So temporarily, God has set Israel aside which is a terrible way to think of it, to put it, you know, like, what? You know, but he's put Israel aside. What does that mean? I just want to make it clear when you're understanding, when we're talking about this in terms of marriage and things like that. One thing, the church is not Israel, okay? And the other thing is, is if we're speaking in marriage terminology, God has not divorced Israel, okay? What God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus himself made it clear when he stated in Nicodemus that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He repeats it again in 1 John chapter 2, right? He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also the whole world. Right? So anyone, anyone, not just the Jews, not just an Israelite, 
not just the nation of Israel, who puts their faith in Jesus, has agreed to the marriage and becomes a member of the church and therefore the bride of Christ. And that's basically what John's saying. And then John ends it with verse 30. The last words that John speaks here in the Gospel of John, in my opinion. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Right? For us to have eternal life, Christ had to die. He said that. The Son of Man must be put up on a pole. For, for us to put our faith in Jesus to be born again, guess what? We have to die. We have to die to self. That means to give up your life for Jesus in every way you can, spiritually, symbolically, physically, if necessary, to give up your life for Jesus, 100%. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Jesus stated himself in Matthew 16, for example. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have to die to self. He also said this, whoever does not bear his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. You have to. You have to. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to do that. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up the cross. It's not about you anymore. It's all about Jesus. So in our lives, in our walk, in our relationship, Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Right? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, as it tells us in Matthew 23. We are not God. Right? We cannot become God. We should never be confused about that, just in case you were. I don't think anyone here is. There are people who are confused about that. You are not the master of the universe. You may not even be the master of your own house. Just depends. Don't be, like I said, don't fall to that demonic, prideful, ignorant virus that has snuck into our culture and to our churches today. You are not God. You cannot be God. We must decrease. He must increase. There's a phrase for it. It's called presentism. If you want to look it up on your own, you can. Presentism is, is evil. The, the ideology behind presentism is evil. But the idea behind it is that we are the master of our own domain. That we can, in a sense, be like gods and control what we're doing. That's the, it's the ideology pretty much that's in the government, most politicians, all these type of things today. We can, we can control the climate. We can control this. Well, they learn out very quickly that they can't control these things, but they think that they can. Anyway, I'm not going to go down that. The idea is we do not need to exalt ourselves in that way because we are not God. Right? We must decrease. John the Baptist was all about pointing people to Jesus. He was not about himself. He wasn't out there selling John the Baptist t-shirts. Right? He wasn't, you know, John the Baptist tour. It's going to be hitting the town near you. Get your tickets in advance. You can pay extra for the VIP meet and greet tickets. The noise means <laughs> no end. I was looking at tickets for King and Country's Christmas show that was coming to Everett, and I was just like, I can't afford any of these tickets. It's a, the cheap ticket's $100. 
a person. But if you want, you know, if you want to get the meet and greet tickets and the VIP pass and get a chance to, you know, possibly get a photo with the band. We tried to wait after to get a picture with Newsboys, I think, after that. The line was like forever. You'd never get a picture with them anyway. But it, he wasn't, John the Baptist wasn't about things like that. He wasn't like promoting his podcast while he was out there, right? Let, hear me talk about the Lamb of God right here. Have you guys subscribed to my podcast yet? Are you followers on my YouTube channel? He's, he's not doing any of that type of stuff. He didn't even care if people knew who he was. Because all he wanted you to know is who Jesus was. And if you came to John the Baptist and were appointed, John, some of John's own disciples left him and went and followed Jesus. Did that, did that bother John? No, it didn't bother John. Because that was Jesus. That was the Messiah. That was the Lamb of God. So he wasn't about himself. He wasn't about his podcast. He wasn't about his TikTok channel. Right? He wasn't about his movie deals or his newest book or whatever he was doing. The new clothing line. Right? John the, Bob, John the Baptist isn't going around. You know, he, he wasn't like, you know, I'm not really good at being humble. Because I'm great at it. Right? He wasn't like that. That wasn't like, you know, John the Baptist's attitude. He was, he was just like, I'm not even worthy to, to untie the laces on his sandals. It's not about me. It's all about him. That's who you need to follow right there. It's Jesus. I'm not going to exalt my name. He wasn't about increasing his stature. He wasn't about growing his followers, right? None of that mattered to him. There's a story about Hudson Taylor, as a matter of fact. And Hudson Taylor was brought into a church, and he was going to be speaking. And you know, they gave him this great introduction, Right, this fabulous, just you know, the you know greatest man, all these fancy words, and he was so embarrassed, you know, that when he got up there, the first thing he said was, "I'm just a little servant of an illustrious master." And he said, "I can't, I can't live up to those. That's, it's not about me." And I think John the Baptist would agree. He would pretty much say the same thing, right? It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus. Only Jesus matters. Only Jesus matters. And then it ends this way on the chapter starting in verse 31. And it's under, you know, this is, there's some discussion here on whether or not this is John the Baptist still speaking or this is just John the Apostle writing. I tend to think it's just John the author, the apostle, not John the Baptist speaking. But this is how John wraps up this chapter. By declaring these important truths about Jesus and our need for Jesus, and in a sense declaring why only Jesus matters and why our lives must be only about Jesus. Hudson. I will call you out. 1, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. That's the first thing that's brought out. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is God. And he has authority above or over all. Right? We need to be born from above. That's what born again means in the Greek. It means to be born from above. But we are not from above. We need to be born again through Christ. But only Jesus is from above. The second thing that he declares about Jesus he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, right? It says, he, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
right? Jesus is bearing witness to what he has seen and heard because Jesus is from above. So what he has seen and heard is what God has seen and heard. So the words he is speaking are God's words, right? But yet not everyone accepts it. Not everyone accepts this truth. But he says, for those who do, for those who do accept it, right? We bear witness by personal experience, by how God works in our own lives, that his witness is true. That God is true. That he is the word of God. And when we obey his word and we put that into practice, then we experience his truth and his power. And so we're bearing witness that his witness is true. The third thing that he brings out is that he is the son of God. God the son. Right? Verse 35. It says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Into his hand. Right? The father loves the son. The father has sent him. Right? No, one comes from the, no one comes to the father except through Jesus. The father loves him. And as Jesus stated himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It says here that the father has given all things into his hand. Right? He is the son of God. He's God the son. And the fourth thing that he brings out by wrapping up the chapter is, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, right? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, it says, does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, right? This is the only place that John, in the, in the Gospel of John, that he uses the word wrath. He uses it again like six times in the book of Revelation, mind you, but here in the Gospel of John, this is the only place that he uses it. The, the, the simple truth behind that is that either we trust Jesus or we reject Jesus. Either you have eternal life or you suffer the wrath of God. There is no middle area there. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How do you suppress the truth? What is it that you're suppressing? The fact that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is the way. That Jesus is the life. You suppress the truth when you reject Jesus. So there's only... Two options. Either you trust Jesus and put your faith in him and you're born again or you reject Jesus and you're going to suffer the wrath of God. That's all there is. So if you want to take away anything from John chapter 3, the whole chapter basically, you can wrap it up with three things. And it's three uses that John has of the word must. All right? The word must is used three different ways or three different times in this chapter and it wraps up everything that we've been talking about. The first one goes back to verse 7. Right? Very, verse 7, he's talking to Nicodemus and Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Not that you should. Okay? Not that possibly you should think about it, Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's imperative, Nicodemus. You must be born again because you can only enter into the kingdom of God if you're born again. So you must be born again. The second one is verse 14. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, listen, you must be born again and I must be lifted up. 
you want eternal life, you have to put your faith in me. For you to receive eternal life, I must be lifted up. I have to do this. It's imperative that I do this. It's imperative that you do that. Be born again. And the last thing he says is what we just talked about, verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. If we are believers in Jesus, then our lives have been radically changed by the truth that the Son of Man was lifted up. Right? We are, our lives have been changed by the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And now our lives must, must, must be lived for the glory of God. As we grow in our relationship, we must decrease even the more, and Jesus needs to increase the more. So humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. It tells us in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Who do you want exalting you, man or God? God. Right? 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. We work so hard getting our name exalted and lifting ourselves up on a worldly scale. And none of it matters. None of it. It doesn't matter unless we decrease and we let Jesus increase in our lives. Our lives need to be lived for the glory of God. So we must decrease even more so that he can increase more. And we have to humble ourselves. Listen, we don't want people following us. It's, it's not about that. We want them following Jesus. I don't care if people ever remember my name. You know, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is that they remember Jesus, right? That comes from the conversation that you spend hours and hours and hours speaking to people over and over again, ministering and pouring into their lives about the truth of Jesus. All you hope is that one day that truth becomes so evident that they give their lives to Jesus and continue to walk in that and live a life for the glory of God. And if years down the road they're like, how did you come to Christ? And they're like, you know, I don't. I talked to someone one time, and it just, well, you remember who? What? No. It doesn't matter, right? It does not matter. What matters is, is that they got to know Jesus, right? They got to know Jesus. We want people following Jesus. It's not about my name. It's not about your name. It's not about the church's name. It's not about Calvary Chapel as a movement. It's none of those things. It's only about one name. It's about his name. Because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. It's only Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to work this out in us so that we can continue to point people to Jesus. We don't want to be exalted, Lord. We want to exalt you. So I pray, Lord, that we can continue to do that. Lift you up. Point people to you. Be a light in the darkness so that people can see the truth of who Jesus is and why they need him. People must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. We don't want them suffering the wrath of God because we love them too much. And God loves them too much. So we thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.